Oh, good evening, everybody. Nice to see you all. Um, so my name's Chris Wickland. Uh, I'm a senior pastor of uh, Living Word Church Network, and uh, we planted our first church around about 10 years ago, and, and uh, the first four and a half years were awful. And then the next, the next sort of five years turned out to be reasonably quite good fun. So that's kind of where we're at today. I'm married to a, a beautiful woman called Tracy, and we've got five children, of which one's about to get married in about three weeks' time. It's like, doesn't time fly, right? So I remember when he was like, yeah, high, and now he's, he's a bit older. So um, I generally get to meet with Mark probably about once a month or once every six weeks. And we've been doing this now for probably about four years, I think. And so it's really nice for me because as someone who's prophetic, it's, it's very difficult sometimes to be actually able to have a, a normal conversation with other prophetic people because they're not really that far, uh, you know, they're quite few, few around. And so me and Mark, we get to talk about some things that, you know, that really annoy us about the prophetic or things that are really good. So we have some great conversations and over the years, our friendships developed and uh, I'm just very grateful for Mark and what he does. You see, because what Mark does is he takes things like the prophetic ministry, and he's, by the grace of God, worked out how to break that down so that people can learn how to do you know, that and operate in, this, in the spirit of prophecy, which I think is really good. I'm not like that. I'm just like, you know, well, I'll just do it, don't I? I just, I just don't, you know. But Mark has taken that kind of, I just do it, and he breaks it down scripturally. So you're in for a good weekend this week. But one of the things he asked me to do was to um, maybe expand your horizons a little bit in, in, in respect to the, to the prophetic and uh, you know, get the old crowbar in and, and wrench open some heads because the prophetic can be quite amazing. Um, you know, and I, I've grown up in the charismatic movement and I was always told, you know, EEC, exhortation, encouragement and consolation, no dates, no mates, no correction or any of that. Yet all the prophetic words that God ever gave me seemed to break the rules. Um, and so I'm going to share a little bit about my journey. I'm going to share some of the prophecies that God's given me over the years, um, just to, to widen your horizons and also just to share prophetically where we're probably at as a nation. You know, uh, the, the, like tomorrow you're going to be talking about finances and the state of the nation, etc. And it's a worldwide problem. And just share some of the visions and dreams that God has given me pertaining to the economy. Um, so I don't know if anyone knows this, but I, I come from my testimonies from witchcraft to Christ. I had a very dramatic encounter with, with Jesus. I was just minding my own business one day uh, out in the woods doing a, a ritual, witchcraft ritual, and the voice of God spoke to me. And when he spoke to me, it was, it was peculiar because everything inside me resounded uh, in a way I can't describe to his voice. It was, like, it was like something deep down within me always knew his voice. And, and suddenly I heard this voice. Now I know it was Jesus, and in the moment that he spoke to me, I knew that he was Jesus, I knew that he was the creator of everything, and I knew that he was God. So that was my first download of theology right there and then. And he said to me, stop what you're doing and come to know me, you can be forgiven for this. And after a few, uh, a few instances where he had to keep saying this to me because I didn't really understand what, what, what he meant, um, eventually I, got, I joined some uh, youth group and I got saved and, and it was all great, right? Bed of roses, you know, I'm now a Christian. Not really, because where I'd come from witchcraft into Christ, I had a lot of problems, I had a lot of baggage, uh, a lot of demonic stuff. And one of the things that I had was depression. Now, this, now there's different types of depression, uh, but this was a demonic depression. I'm not saying all depression is demonic, I'm just saying my one was, and I know that it was. Because I, I could just be quite happy one minute, and I'd just feel this dark cloud descend on me, 
And then I just want to take my life or something. And so one night I decided as a Christian, this, this heaviness came upon me. And I thought, I'm going to take my life. That's it. I'm done. I'm finished. So I drove up to Ports Downhill. Everyone know Ports Downhill? Yes, that's a nice sort of viewpoint, isn't it? So I found a good place to drive off the edge. And uh, I turned my car around up to 60 miles an hour, went straight off the edge of the cliff. This was quite late at night. And as the, as the car was hurtling through the air, I remember I had my eyes shut and my, my holding onto the, uh, to the steering wheel. And this intense bright white light lit up the whole car. It was so bright that I could see through my closed, uh, my closed eyelids. You know, I could see the outline of the car and everything. And this wave of peace just came upon me. And then I blacked out. And when I came to, the car had landed on its roof and I was upside down in the car. And I was still alive and I was pretty angry because I'd failed yet again. So I got out of the car and the voice of God said to me, you're not dying because you've got work to do. So I was like, okay. So I clambered up to the top of the hill again and this, this white car pulls up. This is the cheesy bit. This white car pulls up and there was a bearded man in the car, okay. And he said to me, do you want to lift? And I said, yes, please. And uh, I got in the car and it all became very dreamlike. And I didn't say to him where I lived or anything. And he drove me straight to my house. And, uh, and then off he went. So I believe that that was an angelic encounter. So what my point is, when I became a Christian, <clears throat> where I'd come from witchcraft and had a lot of paranormal experiences throughout my childhood, when I landed into Christianity, I knew that Christianity had to be way greater than the things that I'd seen of the enemy camp. I'd seen some terrible things that the enemy can do. And so I came into Christ knowing inwardly that there has to be so much more that we have as Christians, way more than the devil has, way more power, way more things. And, uh, and so God has been leading me on a bit of a journey with that. Now, just I'm going to go right back before I got saved and then I'll start and, and I'll come back to that later on because it's, it's significant for the times that we, which we're in. I actually had a prophetic dream before I was even born again. Anyone ever had one of those? Yeah, there's a couple. Yeah, it's good. So I'm not the only weirdo in the room, right? Just, just me and you. So, um, so I had this dream, and in this dream, it showed several, several formats or times of my life. And one part, it showed how the hand of God had spared my life from various things that should have killed me. And then, and then I was taken to this next scene where Leviathan tried to eat me, but he didn't succeed. Yay. And, uh, and then the last part of the dream was I was walking in Egypt, and I was in all of this beautiful ceremonial regalia, and I had this mitre on my head, and hovering over my head was this title, Master of Dreams. Of course, I didn't know, you're probably thinking, oh, that's Joseph. But I didn't know who Joseph was. I didn't know any of that. I just like, had no religious upbringing. And I, it was only about 10 years ago that I was in the bath, and I was like, what does that even mean? Oh, it's Joseph, I see. And so that's really important, because what I'm going to share as well later on is leading up to the times in which we're in, because the time that we're in now is the beginning of a Joseph generation. I, I know prophets always use like the, 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 you know, these generation and that generation and the Joshua generation. But actually, you see, God wants to raise up people in this hour to save and protect the church and bless the church from the financial collapse that's coming so that the church can thrive, not just barely survive, in the days in which we're coming into. And also, we will be a blessing to Egypt, as Joseph was as well. Okay, all right, I can see some people starting to go to sleep, so it's time to, to crack some heads here. Okay, so, um, so I, and I, first, I first got, well, just before I got married, I, I had this real strong call, I felt, of God to go to Israel. And there I knew that he would show me what his will was for my life. 
And I was like, well, I can't afford to go to Israel. How am I ever going to afford to get there? And then I had a, a 900 pound tax rebate from the tax man. Thank you, Mr. Tax Man. So, and I knew then that I was to go. And I went there and it was on the last night in Jerusalem. I was at this big messianic prophetic event. I don't know how I ended up there, but I was there. And you had people like Morris Sorello and all these kind of like, you know, these big guys at the front preaching and sharing. And it was a really good evening. And at the end, I had one guy from America. He came up to me and he said, son, he said, can I anoint you with oil? He said, I, I feel that God has called you to be an end time prophet to the nations. And I was like, oh, that sounds good. Yeah, go on. And you can, you can anoint me. I was young. you know. I didn't know what he was doing. So he anointed me with oil and stuff and off he went. And then another guy came from Canada because this was like an international event. And he came up to me and said, oh, God's called you to be an end time prophet to the nations. However, you're going to have to go through some stuff. God's going to have to break you and do this to you so that you can be in a place where you're humble enough to be able to bring and deliver his word in a way that's honoring and integral. And I was like, that was the bit I didn't like. I was like, oh, really? I like the first bit. I don't like this second bit. What does that mean? Um, and for the first five years after that prophetic word, I, I then got married a year later. Absolutely nothing happened. And I was expecting God to do something, but it never happened. The first year went, the second, the third, the fourth. And then in the fifth year, I started getting these dreams. And I didn't really understand to start with, but you know when you get a prophetic dream, it just doesn't leave you. There's something about it. And I couldn't, I couldn't quite shake it off. And then that's when I began to realize that God was starting to speak to me. And I had many dreams at that time pertaining to Europe, uh, to war, and to the mother of all stock market crashes, and also the state of the church that she was in at that particular time. But these dreams started to become more real and God started to put me into more awkward positions. So I, I, I remember I got this job at this company called Bank Check and uh, I was working there for a few weeks and uh, I remember being in the toilet, I'm either in the bath, in the shower, in the toilet. God, the Holy Spirit always seems to want to talk to me in those places, I don't know why. And so I was just sitting in the office, I was at work and I was just thinking, I wasn't actually on the toilet, I was just sat there just thinking and praying. And, uh, and the Holy Spirit said to me, this company is about to go bust and you need to tell the manager that it's about to go bust. And I was like, oh, great. <laughs> so so I, I, I got a, an appointment to meet the manager, the, 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 the director rather. So I went into his room, and I'm not exaggerating, it was this enormously long table and he was like up on a high chair and I was sat down, you know, on a chair down like low and he was looking at me and said, so uh, what is it that you want to talk to me about then? And I said, well, I feel God has told me to tell you <coughs> that your company is about to go bust and you're literally gambling with the staff right now, hoping that it's going to work. But I believe God is saying to me to tell you that it's not going to work. And he was like, well, you've got that wrong there, son. You see, you know, and he's like telling me about how he believes in reincarnation and God's not real and all this kind of stuff. So I thought, OK, <coughs> I must have got that one wrong. And it was about a week later, we're all just sat in there typing away on the keyboards and things. And then the, the main director came in and then these are other directors. Now they'd heard about what I'd said. And they come up to me and they said, Chris, you, can you pray for us as, as directors for the decisions we're about to make? So I was like, okay. So I prayed for them and then they went in. And then they came back out, basically told everyone, put down tools, the company has just gone bust, it's over. And so that, that was kind of like the beginning <coughs> Of, of the sort of the prophetic for me. So my prophetic gifting has always been quite predictive of future events and speaking into uh, situations and circumstances. 
And, and put me into, God's put me in some really awkward, tight spots sometimes. I remember there was one guy, um, there's, there's several stories, but I just picked one, where I just finished a gig, because I used to be a full-time musician, so it was quite late at night. I was loading up all my stuff, putting it into the car. And then there was these two English guys and then two Geordies. I don't call them English because I couldn't understand a word they were saying. Right, so I had two Geordies and two English guys, and uh, they said, oh, could you give us a lift to the nightclub? Right, I used to have a Volvo estate in those days, and I couldn't say I don't have any room, because quite clearly I really did have the room. And uh, I, I was really like, mm. but then I felt a check like from the Holy Spirit saying, no, take them. So I, I said, okay, get in the car. So they get in the car. Two Geordies, I don't know what they were going on about, muttering about something in the back, back of the car. And I was sat, there was one guy, who, a, a young English guy here, and, and his brother was in the back, and then two Geordies as well. And suddenly the Spirit came upon me, and I said to the guy next to me, he said, he said, what do you want to do? He wants to go to some local nightclub. And I saw this picture of him being so angry that he broke a bottle and he put it in someone's face. And then that guy's life was ruined and this guy was going to go to prison for it. And, uh, and the Holy Spirit just came upon me and I said to him, your relationship with your girlfriend is in a mess. And I said, and what's going to happen tonight is you want to go to this club. You're going to put a bottle in someone's face. And it, you know, it's going to wreck their lives and it's going to wreck your life. The guy in the back, his brother, started going, oh, no, 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 not now, no, not now. Well, apparently he used to be a Christian. He turned his back on God because God doesn't speak anymore. And now he's being confronted with the fact that God is speaking to his brother. And, and these George are like, why, I don't know what they were going on about. So then we eventually, we went to the nightclub and the guy said to me, he said, wait here for five minutes. He said, if I'm not, gone in, if I'm not out in five minutes, then just go without me. And uh, so that all four of them went in. And uh, I honestly didn't expect this. I thought, ah, he's just going to go in because people never listen, do they? And uh, that's, that's, you know, that's just me being a bit of a glass half full kind of guy. He, he's going to go in there. He's going to do his thing. And that's going to be the end of it. So I waited. I only waited a couple of minutes. He come running straight out. Uh, he, said, he said, you're right. He said, I'm going to do something stupid. He said, get me in the car. Get me out of here right now. And his brother come out going, no, no, what are you doing? Don't listen to him. You know, he's an idiot. No, come on, we can have a good time. He's like, no, I need to get back home. I'm going to do something really stupid tonight. I know it. So he got in the car and drove home. And, uh, you know, that, that was his story. And so that was, that was kind of like my light introduction into, into the prophetic. Because then things started to get a little bit more serious. In 2006, I was um, just having a quiet time, and God gave me these three uh, waking visions. And uh, the first one was, I was driving away from a volcano behind me, and I was looking in the rear view mirror, and it exploded, and there was this pyroclastic flow that came down one side. Then I was taken to another scene, um, and I saw this molten lava coming down into a village, and then there was another scene as well which showed that village being wiped out. And I saw the mountain, I saw, the, I saw everything. And I, at that time, I wasn't in church leadership. And I said to the pastors of the church, I said, hey, this is what I've just received this morning. It's like this open vision. And they were like, well, yeah, okay, Chris, uh, we'll, just, we'll just put that on the back burner, yeah? And um, so, so that's what, what it did. It went on the back burner. And a couple of weeks later, I was at a pub and I saw on the, on the big screen, at the end of Channel 4 News, it was this volcano. I was like... But that's the exact volcano in my dream. So I did a little bit of research into it and found out that it was the Mount Merapi volcano and the villagers wouldn't leave the, wouldn't leave the, uh, the area until someone had had a vision from God. 
But the guy who got visions from God had died. And so they didn't know what to do. And I found out that United Nations were on the ground with a watching post trying to see if, you know, if it was going to explode or not. And they weren't sure. So I got in contact with the Indonesian consulate and then they basically told me, I think, well, and then I spoke to the United Nations. And I honestly didn't think they would pay any attention to me. I spoke to the United Nations. I said, look, guys, I know this sounds crazy. I said, I'm a Christian. I believe God is speaking to me. And to tell you that that is going to go and the pyroclastic flow will come down a certain side. It will go into the village and it will destroy that village. Um, and two days later, they said, we're going to take your message seriously. And they evacuated the village. Now, two scientists decided to stay in the village anyway. Um, and then sure enough, the pyroclastic flow happened, it exploded and it went down, took out the village and killed the two scientists. Um, so that was kind of like my first introduction to like predictive prophecy and the fact that it could change people's lives. Um, yeah. And so then one of the other ones I had was, this was a few weeks before the big tsunami that hit Japan. And in, in this dream, I was on this silver train. I'd never been in a train like this before. It looked really kind of weird. It was all kind of aluminium. And I was in this train. We were coming around this corner and I could see all these landmarks. And there was this tsunami wave coming straight towards me. And I knew I was, that was it. I was going to be a goner. And then the wave hit and then I woke up. And then, lo and behold, you know, a couple of weeks later, the tsunami happened. But the Japanese government put it out on the news saying they were looking for a missing train. And then they showed a picture of what the train looked like, and it was the exact train that I saw. So again, I got in contact with them, and I said all the landmarks where I'd seen it, where it was going around the coastline, because that's where it got hit. And then a couple of hours later, they found it, it was on the news, and there it was. It was the exact same train that I saw. And so that was, that was like a, my kind of brief introduction to sort of the prophetic, really. And then back in 2007, I was kind of minding my own business, going to sleep, and I was just about to go off to sleep. Now, I didn't see him, but he was there, and an angel appeared. And he spoke to me audibly. And as he spoke the words, um, they kind of appeared on my eyes as well. So you know when you look at a light for a long time and you shut it, you still see the light. It, it was like, like a retina burn of what he was saying going onto my eyes. And he basically said, on September the 18th, something's going to be really happen. It's going to happen. It's going to be really bad for the UK economy. Now, this was three months before this had happened. So he told me that, and again, I told the church leaders. I was at a different church at that time, and they were like, okay, well, let's just, let's just see what happens. You know, if this is from God, let's just see what happens. So at least they didn't think I was cuckoo like the previous place. And sure enough, on September the 18th, I can't quite remember what it was now, but one bank, uh, there, was, there was the Icelandic bank that collapsed, and then Bear Stearns went down and a whole series of other banks went down so that then in October, you know, the stock market in America shut down 777.77 points um, at that time. Now, the, the stock market wasn't very high at the time, so that was a big down, that was a percentage drop. It was huge. But God had been giving me many dreams for over 20 years pertaining to the coming economic collapse. So I knew what had happened in 2007 was just a blip compared to what's coming. What is coming is, is just a world shaker. It won't just affect Britain, it will affect everything. And one of the, one of the dreams that I had was, uh, and again, I'd never been there, so I actually had to go there to see if this was true. But I was walking down Canary Wharf in this dream, bear in mind I'd never been there, and I saw this particular building. Now I know what bank it is now, but I'm not gonna tell you, because I could get sued. 
uh, and I saw this building and instantly it just collapsed and, and all this dust was everywhere and I could hear the BBC in my ear saying we're just waiting to see, for the dust to settle to see what damage this has done to the UK economy. And then I was taken up in the spirit and as I was flying over Great Britain I could see like the blitz from the Second World War. Every household, every business, every infrastructure, everything in this country was decimated because it caused a systemic crash. One thing to another to another to another. It just wiped out everything. My wife had similar dreams where she was driving past Parkley's bank and all these people were throwing money at the bank manager and, uh, and they were just laughing at him because their money had become worthless overnight. And she saw there an angel standing on the curb and he said to her, this is the end, but it's not the end. You know, so we're not into the, we're not into the final days of revelation, but it is, it is the end of society as we know it. Not the end of the world, but just the end of the way that we've done stuff. Because we've, we've had financial crashes before, we've had great depressions before, and guess what? We made it through, we're okay, and actually during those times, the church really thrived, and the greatest revivals that the world has ever seen actually happened through times of economic collapse. As a fact, I looked at all the, the Great Recession from the late 1800s, I looked at what happened in the, in the mid-1900s, and whenever there was an economic collapse, or there was a Great Depression, God just moved mightily by his spirit. And so I'm encouraged by that. Um, so some other, other dreams. Uh, where are we? Uh, this, one, this one's quite a poignant one. God gave me this dream about the happy-go-lucky church. Now, in this dream, I was the church, all right? Uh, it was personified as a guy, and I was this happy-go-lucky guy. I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm so happy-go-lucky. And I remember, I remember these people on the fringe. Now, the dream was very descriptive, and it had like the farmer and these people on the farm, and they were like the prophetic type. And these prophets were going, you, you've got, we're warning you, you've got to pay attention to these warnings. But like, they're like, you guys, you're just on the fringe. I'm not interested, you're weirdos. I'm not going to listen to you. This is a happy-go-lucky church. wasn't listening to anybody. And there were some other voices that were speaking. He wasn't listening to them either. And then as I was getting ready to go out on Friday night, I could see the news was on and I could see all this terrible stuff was going on in the world. And yet I still was like, oh, it will sort itself out. It'll all be good. And I remember going out, happy-go-lucky, going down the road. And then suddenly these people screaming. As I turned around, there was this huge tidal wave and it just paused. And in that moment... I saw an angel and I shouted to the angel, why didn't you tell me? Why didn't you warn me? And he said, I did tell you. I did warn you. I sent you prophets, but you ignored them. I sent you these other people, which I can't remember who they were. And he said, and you should have even looked at the news. You could have even just seen it with your natural mind that things were getting bad, but you did not listen. And then the wave hit. And then the only way to survive was to get to much higher ground. You all encouraged so far? Yay, let's keep going. All right. There is a lot of good prophecies that God has given me as well about a coming revival, the likes that we've never seen before. But it's not going to be like previous revivals. This will be a revival that's born out of difficulty and adversity. Uh, one day he showed me, it was, I think it was an open vision, and he showed me this, or a waking vision, he showed me this um, calendar, and the dates were fudged out. But I saw this line, and it started really low, and gradually it started going up and up, and then it just went whoosh, shot straight up. And at the top of the graph, it was written the golden age of the church. But it was only for a limited time, and then it ended. And I was like, what is this? 
And God was showing me that th this curve was the glory of God being revealed on the earth. And there would come a time where it would shoot up and the power of God and the spirit of God would be so strong upon the earth that it would be known as the golden age of the church. It would be the a revival of the lights we'd never seen. Now, those are people that are dispensationalist in their theology. They're like, where's that in the Bible? Okay, so what I do is I look in the book of Joel. What does it say in the book of Joel? What happens before the great and terrible day of the Lord? Before the great and terrible day of the Lord, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. But wasn't that fulfilled in the book of Acts? Nope. It was only partially fulfilled in the book of Acts because the context of the scripture is for Israel. The context of the scripture is for the end of days prior to the return of Christ. Do you honestly think that the greatest deceptions at the very end of the age when the Antichrist is ruling and reigning, whether you believe in that or not, but at the greatest time of deception upon the earth, do you honestly think that God is just going to fold his arms and say, well, you know, good for them. And there's a little itty bitty remnant church that's all that's left is just those two people in a bunker. And then God's going to come and get them at the end of the age. God's coming back for a glorious church that has made herself clean through, through you know, the spotless clean bride that's, that's been purified by her good work works. It says in Revelation that she washes herself in the blood of the lamb. She makes her garments clean, meaning they were soiled and she makes them clean. The church is going to go through a massive reformation as we move further and further towards the end of days. Then my life, I mean I've got loads here but I'm just going to pick a few. Then my life kind of took a, a weird twist. In 2018, uh, it was in October, I, I, I had this really lovely fluffy message to give to a congregation, you know, and I was about to get up and give it, and then the Holy Spirit came upon me and said, many, many, tekel passing, and it was referring to Theresa May, saying, she has found wanting, and I'm going to remove her, and also, and so I got up, and I started prophesying for 45 minutes, it's on our YouTube channel, uh, Storehouse 7 Productions, look right down there, it's near the bottom, and it's, it was the prophecy about Brexit, and God basically said, Theresa May was going to go, Brexit was going to happen. But then, but then after that, I started prophesying all this other stuff, things that I'd never, I'd never, I had no idea what I was talking about. And it was talking about the resurrection or resurgence of monastic communities and prayer communities, again, filling our land. And that those communities are instrumental for the move that God wants to do. Because if you want to see God move, you need to get on your knees. And if there are people that are praying for our land, and that's their primary purpose, the church, which is an outreach type model, can get out there and do the work that needs to be done. Because the church isn't really, I'm not being rude, but the church isn't that great at praying. Yeah, I know this as a leader, if we have prayer meetings, yeah, um, you, you, you will get few people there. I remember one of our leaders, one of the other congregations, he was saying, who wants to see revival? And all these people put their hands up, yeah, okay, who's coming Thursday night to pray for revival? Yeah, and it was just so funny to see it because that's the reality. It's like, yes, we want to see revival, but no, we're not going to pray for it. Hallelujah. So we need those, we need those prayer communities. Now, another thing that God told me a couple of years ago, and the moment that he gave it to me, I knew I was in trouble with the enemy. And God said to me, something is coming to this, something is coming that's going to shut down every church Every church in the land is going to be shut down. This is an attack of the devil to shut down the church, to silence her, to stop prayer and worship going to the heavens. And I was like, as soon as it came out of my mouth, it's on my phone. As soon as it came out, I just sensed this. 
you know something I don't want you to know. And the next day, I died. It was, it was, it, I, I had a cardiac arrest. I was out with my family, just, just, you know, I was a fit guy. I was just jumping around the trampoline, suddenly felt ill. Next thing I know, I was dead. Uh, it took 20 minutes, four electric shocks to bring me back from the dead. When I did go to the hospital, I failed all my Glasgow tests. They said, they said look, we've got this back from, back from the, the guy back from the dead, but unfortunately, he's got severe brain damage. And uh, I mean, my father-in-law, give us a wave, Steve. He basically said to the doctors, yeah, well, that's not how it's going to be, because <laughs> we, believe, we believe that God will heal him. And my wife, when she was praying over me, I looked a mess, and she was looking by things in the natural. She's like, God, well, what, what can I do? And the, her Bible fell open to Hebrews 11. You know, faith is the substance of things hoped for, evidence of things not yet seen. And then if you look down, it says, and how wives had their loved ones brought back from the dead. So then she knew that God was going to ra raise me from the dead and raise me back to, to good mental health. And, uh, well, here I am, still, still kind of sane, praise God. But that, that, was, that was amazing because I don't know how it happened, but it, it, it hit Facebook and it just exploded. I mean, it went all around the world. I mean, people at Bethel and stuff, you know, the one in America, they, they picked up on it and they're praying, and all these people praying that I wouldn't die. And everybody said the same thing. They all knew that this, the devil had overstretched his arm and that I was going to be all right. Everybody, you know, from the local area right through to around the world. And uh, I just praise God for that. So that was the COVID prophecy. Now, I'm missing a lot out here, but I just want to share some things like, why is this important? What's this got to do with that Joseph dream at the beginning? Because one of the things that God has consistently showed me throughout my whole life is the coming economic collapse that will be the biggest of the biggest of the biggest of them all. But, you see, God is not a God of hopelessness. God is a God of hope. Now, listen, in the book of Acts, there was a guy called Agabus. And he came up to the leaders of the church. He said, hey, guys, God's given me this word that there will come a famine that will cover the whole world. Now, what did they do? Did they go, oh, come on, Barabbas, I love your heart, Barabbas. I really love that heart. You're excited. You're zealous for Jesus. But we only do EEC type prophecy here. No correction, no dates, none of that stuff. Come on, sit back down, Barabbas, or whatever your name is, Barabbas. Go sit back down. It's not Barabbas, who is it? It's Bar Agabus. Agabus, thank you. Sit down, Agabus. Go on, just shh, shh, shh. There's a good boy. Right, sit down. Um, but that's not what they did. They, they basically heard him. They tested the word, they weighed the word, and then the church acted on it. So 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and 9, where Paul is on a money drive to get money out of the Corinthians, this is to help churches where the famine was starting to ravage those parts of the world at that time. Now listen, this wasn't an offering like, <coughs> um, could we just have like a couple of hundred pounds just so we can take it to that church, that big church over here in Jerusalem that we've got to feed 5,000 people on a couple of hundred pounds Right? This is an inordinate amount of money that was collected by Paul and Barnabas and the apostles to help the church at White. This was an enormous amount of money. Absolutely staggering. Because a lot of people don't think the church was very big at that time. Did you know that the church in Ephesus was 5,000 strong? The church in Jerusalem, I know on the day of Acts, you know, when Peter gave out that great sermon, 3,000 people got saved. They were from all around, the, around Israel, around the nations. But then later on in the book of Acts, it says that 5,000 men got saved, let alone the wives and the children. We know that the church in Laodicea, 
Well, that, that city was enormous, and there was one church that took up the, the one whole street in length of the city, and there were loads of churches all around it. And then the house churches, this wasn't, this wasn't Aunt Flo and, and Mick Joe in their little council flat up the road. These are rich, and we know this because we found it through archaeology. These are big houses. These are rich people's houses with a room that could see 80 people. And we found through archaeological digs that they had like their own baptismal font and their own altar and stuff. So, you know, when we say, but they had house church, I'm sure there were some small house churches, but it's not house church that we think it is. They were big house churches. They were just big churches in someone's big house. All right. And so that was that was the early church. They had some big challenges. And I believe God is speaking to us and to, to he's warning us and he's been telling us for a long time. The church, it's time to wake up. Because you see, God wants to bless you. He doesn't want you to survive what we're about to go through. He wants us to thrive. He wants the church to be a light to the Gentiles. You see, people are going to come running through that door and and in every church in this land. They're going to come running into the churches thinking, surely the Christian's got an answer. And if they come in through the door and the Christian's going, oh my gosh, oh my gosh, ah! They're going to go straight back out the door going, I'm not going in there again. They're as crazy as we are. They need to see that we've got our act together. They need to see that we have a God of miracles. They need to see that we have a God of breakthrough. But we're not super spiritual with it. We do stuff and we act on the word. Like when Agabus gave that word to the early church, they didn't get all super spiritual and Oh yes, amen. God will provide. We'll do nothing about that word. We've heard that word for so many years, but we'll just, we'll just trust God will provide. Yeah, that's nonsense. But I think super spirituality is more dangerous than legalism. Because it has the appearance of godliness, but it denies the power of it. And God wants his church and his people to be a people of power. You see, God, he's not stupid. He's very clever. And, but the church is a little bit dumb sometimes. This is your greatest moment to be opportunistic. When you have the answer, when you have the solution, you can give them the gospel and they will readily take it from you. you know, the church has got to really kind of get it together. And this is what God's been telling me for years. It's like, this is coming. You need to do something about it. And so what have we been doing about it? So a couple of years ago, about yeah, two years ago, I sat down with our trustees and our elders and I said, look, of all these words that I believe God has given me over the years about the economic collapse, I said, I think it's imminent now. So I said, we need to do something. We need to do, start doing something now. So we, we, we wrote out a budget. How much would it cost? Because God said to me and my wife, feed my sheep. So I'm not saying I'm not interested in the people of the world, but primarily our focus was feed my sheep. And so I knew that it had to be practically and spiritually. <clears throat> so I do a lot of podcasting and things like that so that I could get loads of teaching out to, out to the people so they could be spiritually strong and spiritually fed. But also practically, uh, also practically, what could we do to feed the sheep? So we sat down, we worked out how much it would cost to feed 200 people for X amount of months. And uh, it's a lot of money. Praise God. But God has been good to us because, you see, through COVID, we had the best financial year that we'd ever had. And we never took an offering once. We never, ever asked for money. Never. You'll never hear me. And you'll never hear me 
up until now, you'll never hear me ask for money. Never done it, because we believe that God will bless us. And how do we know that? Because we are a giving church. We are always tithing. We are always giving. And because it's kingdom dynamics. Oh, tithing's under the law. No, it's not under the law, because they did it before the law. Oh, but I don't believe in tithing. You know, we're a New Testament Christian. We can just do as little as we like and stuff like that. I'm being sarcastic. But no, if you, if you apply a biblical principle to your life, God will honor that and you will reap the rewards of it. What would you rather do? Would you rather do economics the Babylonian style or would you rather do economics God's way? Because that's, that's the way that, that, that I, I try to live. You know, I, I needed a new car. So my car, which was a nice car, because I had a bad heart uh, a little while ago, I couldn't really drive it, so I gave it to my son. But I gave it to him knowing, and I know you were thinking, oh, you shouldn't do it for that motivation. No, but I understand what the Bible says about giving. You read in 2 Corinthians 9, read that whole chapter, it makes for some uncomfortable reason. Reading that my God is able to supply all your needs according to his riches and glory through Christ Jesus, that you will be amply supplied in and sufficient for every good work, and that he'll supply bread for the fi- bread and seed for the sower and all this kind of stuff. There's loads of it. And so what I do is I sow stuff. So I sowed a car to my son. And then the other day I was like, Jesus, I thank you for, for that you've provided me with a new car. I thank you that you've provided me a new car because I know that's, that's what God wants the church to start operating in. Now, it's not prosperity gospel, because prosperity gospel is about, hey, look at me, look at my bling. This is, it says Deuteronomy 8.18, it says, God will, estab- God will empower your hands to get wealth that he may establish his covenant with you. That's the point. It's for the kingdom. It's for God's glory and for God's honor. So I sowed that car into my son, and then I got a phone call the other week saying, God's just told me uh, that I need to go and take you out and buy you a new car. And so, hallelujah, glory be to God. We sowed into, before we had our own building, we sowed into other churches that were trying to pay to get a building. We, we sowed intentionally knowing that we're going to bless them, but knowing that it would also bless us in return. And God literally gave us a £1.2 million building for free. And then a whole load of other money to get it done up. That's God. God gets the glory. Hallelujah. You see, we could do things man's way, right? We could buy a mortgage on a building and pay for the thing seven times over and think that's really good, good frugal use of money. Or we can trust God and believe God to do outlandish and miraculous things because brothers and sisters on the other side of a compromise is a miracle. And God wants to do miracles. Because we, you know, we're all singing these songs like, yes, yes, he's a way maker. He's going to make a way. And oh, we're gonna, he's going to move those mountains. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. But God is saying, well, come on then. Let's do some mountain moving. Let's do some stuff. Let's shake things up a bit. Let's do some stuff. God wants to use you guys. He wants to use his church. You know, the church is so powerful. She is so glorious. But the fact is, we don't even believe it. We don't believe in who we are. And I think the devil's done a really good job at robbing the church of her identity. She just doesn't know who she is. That's why, you know, I see a lot of churches and they just don't know who they are anymore. They've lost their identity. They've lost their power. They've lost their zing. And God wants his church to get that back. You see, the church needs to be awake, not woke at this hour. And this was another prophecy God gave me. And we're starting to see this already. This is, some of it is a judgment, some of it is not.
but you will see a lot of churches disappear over the next few years. And the reason for this is because the churches are just not equipped. They don't have the mindset to come into the new season that we're coming into. Because this season we're coming into is going to be a difficult one. And it, it means that the church has to be awake prophetically to the season that they're in. And that means you have to act on it. So getting back to what we did. So how did we act on these prophetic words? So, so we, 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 so we worked out a budget of how to, to feed all these people. And then we so, said, well, how could we lower that? And someone said, well, we could grow our own food. I was like, yeah, that's a good idea. We worked it out. That would save a third of, of what we were thinking of spending. So then what we did is we, uh, because, I mean, even how, uh, what happened is over COVID time, yeah, the churches got shut down. But in here, after six weeks, I was just like, this is not right. This is not right. And I, I didn't know why it wasn't right, but I just knew in my gut that it wasn't right at that time. And so I spoke, we spoke to Christian Concern. And I said, what's the legal side of this? And I realized, and I, even I knew that there was a separation of church and state. The church, sorry, the state cannot tell a church how, when it can worship. Can't, it's not allowed to do that. That was set in the Magna Carta. In fact, I was one of 130 other pastors through Christian Concern that took the government to court over that issue. And the government backed out because they knew they couldn't win it. All right. And here's a, here's, a, here's a thing. I don't mean to upset anyone by saying this, but when the church was complicit in shutting herself down, she was following an edict from the government, which was an illegal edict. And so when the, when the church thought she was being complicit and law-abiding, she was actually breaking the law. And so, for example, we had, we had like laws that were saying, you shall not baptize. But Jesus says, go into all the world and baptize. Uh, you shan't take communion. But isn't that one of the quintessential things that Catholics and Anglicans and Christians have done for, from year dot? No, we, we must carry on. You, you know, and it was just all these things. You can't take offerings and all this sort of stuff. And, it, and I just, in my spirit, was like, well, hang on a minute. Are we a state church or are we a kingdom church? Now, I know I'm treading on people's toes here, but you see, COVID was really interesting where are you going to draw the line where finally you say, you know what, you've crossed a line and you can't cross that line? Because when was the last time, I have to ask you, when was the last time the church on a worldwide scale shut down? Can you, do you know of any time in history when this ever happened? Have there been plagues before? Do you know what turned, in part, what turned Rome to Christianity was the Christians who during a time of uh, pestilence, so people were dying all over the place, the church was going out and helping them, knowing full well they would die by helping these people, but they knew that there was life beyond the grave. Whereas, the, it was, this, is, this is in the historical records, even the emperor himself said, the Romans, they're just staying at home, they lock themselves in, not going out and not doing anything for anybody. Because as far as they're concerned, there is no life after death. That's it. But the Christians were. And it was things like that. It was one of the things that, that it's called countercultural evangelism, not culturally relevant evangelism, where like, hey, can I look like you? And, 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 and we can just look just like each other, but we're Christians and we're really cool as well. No, countercultural Christianity throughout history has always been what's got people saved in swathes. And when they get saved, 
They're not lukewarm, wishy-washy Christians. They're people that are prepared to die themselves for their own faith. It was people that stood up. You see, during the, during the great Roman oppression, you know, even the Romans, they recognized about the Christians as well. There's another thing that helped turn Rome over, was that the Roman centurions who were sent out, and the soldiers who were sent out to actually arrest Christians that publicly got baptized, because if you got publicly baptized, you would lose all your property and everything and could lose your life. I wonder what Christians would do now. If it became an edict in the land that it was illegal, to get baptized. And if you did publicly get baptized, you would lose your house. I wonder what we would do. It broke my heart when I saw what happens throughout COVID. Now, I'm not being, uh, we were responsible throughout. You know, in the field, we still did all the, you know, when you're two meters apart in a field, it doesn't feel like anything. When it's inside, it feels really huge. So we had a whale of time. We didn't need to wear masks because we're outside. We got to worship God. We got to do church just normally. Uh, and it was, it was great. And, and God was really good. And, and, you know, it was a difficult time as well. But can you see what God is trying to warn us about? I think COVID was a great, a great thing for us in some respects because it shook everything up. And actually, it knocked a lot of nonsense away. And I think we're in this new phase now. It's like, okay, where are we going to, where, where does the rubber hit the road? And how are we going to start responding to this? Bringing this back to the time in which we're living in now is that we're now coming into a time of financial famine. You know, it's in the papers today, you know, that the Bank of England expects, and this is conservatively, that inflation will go up into double digits. Okay, now, I don't know about you, but I, when I went to school, I was taught that if you print off your own money, you get hyperinflation. What have we been doing since the crash of 2007 and 8? Quantitative easing. We've been printing digital money everywhere around the world, printing money, printing money, printing money, printing money to pay off our own debt. Right? If I got my own little printing press and started printing money to give to, give to the bank to pay off my debts, how do you think that would go down? I'd be put in prison, right? But it's, it's just simple economics. If you keep printing money, you devalue your own currency and eventually hyperinflation will come. Now, they've had really clever tools to, to keep the inflation down. But now, because of everything they've done through quantitative easing, they can't do that anymore. So now, the pigeons have come home to roost. Is that, is that the right expression? I'm terrible with my, my expressions, you know, like a cat barking up the wrong tree, stuff like that. But God wants his church to be awake at this time, that there is a financial time coming. There is a, a great depression that's on its way. And God's consistently said to me, it will be the worst of times, but the best of times. You see, what's going to happen over the next couple of years, you're going to see a lot of churches disappear. But the natural world goes, where'd the church go? Where's she gone? But for a season, house churches will explode across this nation. But... House church is not the holy grail, as some think it is, because there's coming a time when the church will come back up from underground and she'll be bigger and stronger than she was before. And then you'll start to see things like football stadiums. I've, I've had open visions, open visions. Of that. What's that one in Portsmouth or wherever it is? What's it called? Fratton Park? I have had an open vision, several open visions that it will be full to capacity with Christians. And it will be a church. It will actually become a church. And I remember putting my hands on this building in this open vision saying, God, how could such a thing even be possible? 
And he just said, it will and I will do it. And I saw it. And I don't believe it's that far off. I think within the next 15, 20 years, that, that place is going to become a church. Because they won't be able to afford to use it for football anymore. So it'll be up for sale. So now's a good chance to, you know, start saving for that building. And this is something else God said to me. When the growth starts coming, church leaders, beware, don't start turning people away because you can't cope with the growth. That's a real warning. God was not happy with that. He said, if you start turning people away because you can't cope with the growth, you're going to have to change your model. You're going to have to change things up a bit. Think bigger. Because the church is going to literally explode in size. Again, I know people don't theologically believe that, but I've seen so many visions. I've had so many things come to pass that God has shown me that I know that I know that I know as I stand here, we will see the greatest revival the earth has ever seen. Now, I know some people go, oh, we've heard this all our lives. Yes, so have I. But I've seen it. I have actually seen it. And I want to conclude with this, 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 this last thought. Well, two last thoughts. <laughs> Firstly, you have heard many warnings about this financial collapse that's coming. But it's now time to start acting on it. We've said to everyone in our church, now this sounds like panic, but it's not. Start putting by few months food supply for yourself. And not just for yourself, but for your friends and neighbours as well. That's a lot of food. I've seen people say, I've got my two months supply. And you go, yeah, I've got a couple of extra tins of beans and a packet of pasta. Right? Yeah, that's going to do you a day. All right? You've got to think big. As a church, we have spent tens of thousands of pounds on food that we've put into storage. And then we, 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 the field that we were meeting on, that was where I was trying to go earlier with the whole COVID thing, is that we then took an acre of that field and we've ploughed it, and this is our second year now, we started growing veg last year. And that field, the, 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 the yields that it's been giving to us is amazing. All right? I'm not lying to you. If anyone, did anyone read the uh, Heart, Heart magazine that came out this month? Is it last month? A few weeks ago. Yeah, a few weeks ago. I had a picture of me. It said I was holding a cabbage that was even bigger than my head, which is saying something, right? <laughs> so I was holding this cabbage. And we had parsnips. I'm not lying to you. They were literally about that. And they, they were like that, that round at the top. You know, people were saying, you know, one parsnip fed eight people. I mean, they were just monster. I mean, the, 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 the potatoes that, we, that we, pla- uh, we sowed, the yields that we were getting back, the farmer guy said, is the same yields that a normal farmer would get using loads of chemicals. We didn't use any chemicals. But what we did do is every seed that, I know I did this, every seed I put into the ground, I was like, God, bless this seed, bless this seed, bless this seed. I just said these same repetitive prayers all the time, all the time as I planted these things. And God gave us such wonderful rewards, especially considering that none of us knew anything about planting or anything. I'll be honest with you, I wasn't a man of faith to start with. I remember when I put that first seed in, and I tell you, an acre, you think, oh, it's not long, it's not big. But you get on an acre of land and you think you've got to go from there all the way up to there and sow something. That's a long way to go. And I started putting these seeds, I was like, this is ain't ever going to work. This ain't ever going to work. This ain't ever going to work. Nothing's going to grow out of this ground. Sure, sure enough, it started growing. So as a church, we need to be hearing the prophetic word, but we need to start acting on it now. It's not enough to say, you know, yes, amen, I, I hear it. It's here now, and the church needs to respond to this. Now, we have to pray about what it is, because for us, we, we've got the farm and we've got the food. For you guys, it might be we need to do soup kitchens or something to help people or whatever. You know, it will be different for each church. It's going to be different for all of us. And also, you need to spend time at home praying, saying, God, how do you want me to respond to the prophetic word? Do I need to get in extra uh, food? Do I need to do this? Do I need to do that? Because 
I mean, I don't need to give you this. If you look into it, the, the, what's going on in Europe, you're not hearing what's going on in Europe at the moment. With the Ukraine war, farmers are not sowing their seed at the moment. Now, I don't know if you know this, but Ukraine is the breadbasket to all of Europe. So we got uh, I, I, someone in Europe the other day, I think it was Germany, they said chicken used to be, I think, four euros a chicken. It's now gone up to 25 euros a chicken. The bag of flour, which was like 45 cents, has now gone up to four pound fifty or four euros fifty, etc. It because of the rarity, because uh, it's just not available anymore as it once was. And you see, next year, that will have a big knock-on effect on the stock markets when they actually uh, ship and trade what corn and what oils and whatever things that they can get, which means the price of food next year will go up exponentially. So we as Christians, we've got to be aware of this. We've got to prepare for this. Hallelujah. Glory be to God. Yeah. And the last thing I want to end with was this, 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 this one of these beautiful visions that God gave me, which was pertaining to the end time church. Now, in this vision, it was under a blood red sky and it was a big valley. And I saw the church finally in, in her. She was beautiful. She went out to war against the enemy. And every Christian was iron, was clad in this beautiful armor. Man, you couldn't, I mean, you couldn't buff it anymore. It was perfectly shiny. But, now this might upset somebody because some people say, in the next revival, there will be no leaders. It will all just be about everybody. I'm sorry, but God is immutable. He is unchanging. He has used leaders from the beginning of your Bible. He has used leaders in the middle of your Bible. He's used leaders at the end of your Bible. And he will do that because that's what we need. We need good leaders to help lead the church to where we're going. And in this dream, I saw, I saw the body of Christ, all clad in armour, going to the front line where the enemy was waiting for us. But amidst them were these mighty men and women of God, clad in armour, but on riding war horses that were also clad from top to bottom in, 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 in this armour. And the anointing of God was so strong on them, I was actually in fear in this vision of these people. Not because of them, but because of the anointing that they carried. It was, it was just so, so shocking that God would allow people to be anointed like that. And then they all came up to the front line for the final battle. I have seen the church in revival, and she is beautiful and glorious, but it will be birthed in adversity. But if we trust our God and we start to walk by faith and stop living by fear, God will do great exploits through us because he wants to use you to do great exploits for his name, for his glory, for his kingdom. Amen. Amen.